Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, the Columbia Journalism Review's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm David Uberti, a staff writer for CJR and your host, and I'm so happy to be back talking to you about the week in media, partly because it's the closest I'll ever come to being a DJ. This week, we'll quickly run through the biggest stories that the chattering classes are chattering about as they sip lattes in Manhattan green rooms. Then we'll discuss a news organization's foray into fictionalized storytelling and whether dramatized recreations can speak to larger journalistic truths. And finally, we turn to Fox News, which finds itself peering over the edge of a potentially historic inflection point for conservative media. So please buckle up, sit back, relax, and step with us into CGR's take in the no-spin zone. Joining me this week is an all-star cast of CJR reporters. Shelley Hepworth. Shelley. Hey there. Carlette Spike. Thanks for being back on the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. And finally, Pete Vernon. Pete, how's it going? Good to be back. Pete is the author of CGR's morning newsletter, The Media Today, which you should all subscribe to on CGR.org. He watches all of Sean Spicer's press briefings so you don't have to. Great times. <laughs> and we'll start the show by running through the week's top media news in the hope that we can all make sense of this manic depressive informational environment in which we now all find ourselves. Pete, what do you got? We got a countdown clock. A countdown clock? Yeah. I don't know if you've heard. We're, we're getting towards 100 days. Are we ready for 100-day content? We are so ready for 100-day content. You've probably already seen some of it in your weekend newspapers and your primetime cable TV, but expect more of it. Saturday marks 100 days since Donald Trump took office, and there's going to be a lot of discussion about what he has and has not done. Uh, Sean Spicer, who I had the pleasure of watching earlier this afternoon, mentioned <laughs> that there's going to be several briefings for the media to help the press understand all the progress that has been made in these first hundred days. I wonder how that's going to go. Well, I guess we'll see. So why is this such a media phenomenon? Why why do we care about hundred Because days? people love round numbers. As Russell Westbrook's MVP case has proved, people in the media love round numbers. But historically, it goes back to I guess Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had a impressive first hundred days in which he shut down the banks and tr basically tried to rescue the U.S. financial system in the midst of the Great Depression. And every president since then has been judged on this standard. Few, if any, have lived up to it. And it is this arbitrary number, but it's something that presidents get judged on early in their terms. And quickly before we move on, what are the prevailing narratives of, of this as, as we approach this somewhat meaningless marker? It's a chance for everyone to step back and say, how's this going so far? And I'm sure that the administration will point to the executive orders and Judge Neil Gorsuch being approved the Supreme Court. But there's also a narrative of no legislative progress and a really chaotic first few months in office. And beware of sports metaphors when it comes to 100-day content, wins, putting points on the board, et cetera, et cetera. There's obviously a tendency to do that with political media, and you'll see a lot of that over the coming week. You didn't like my Russell Westbrook comparison? I mean, I love Russell Westbrook, so I, I won't take any issue with that. The next story comes from the New York Times Sunday profile of James Comey and his influence on the 2016 election. This, we kind of had to feel like, was a story that gotten beaten to death. But the Times really added uh, an in-depth look to that narrative with a deeply reported piece on the ways in which James Comey influenced the election, quoting from the story that appeared yesterday on A1. And it says, an examination by New York Times based on interviews with more than 30 current and former law enforcement, congressional, and other government officials found that while partisanship was not a factor in Mr. Comey's approach to the two investigations, he handled them in starkly different ways. And that's referring to the investigations of Hillary Clinton, which we were told about before the election, and Donald Trump, which he refused to answer whether that ex investigation existed until March. 
it was a really nicely done piece, and I'm, I'm extremely happy that the Times ran it, but I thought it was missing an important point, uh, at least from my perspective, which is that it made a very glancing reference to the media's role in making this such a huge issue. And the New York Times' role in particular, obviously, the New York Times ran a now famous front page in which the top stories all above the entire fold of the newspaper were about the Comey revelations and what they sort of portended for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And in, in the course of this gigantic, well-reported piece, the Times basically you know, referred to media coverage in a very passive sense. You're referencing the second Comey letter about the reopening of the Clinton investigation after Anthony Weiner's laptop was found to have emails from Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. It's a good point that this was very much focused on the FBI and the Times um, seemed to leave out their own part in this in what really was a, a driver of that coverage. Right. And it sparked the typical Twitter tantrums on both sides of the debate with people within the mainstream media and a lot of folks uh, from the Times staff basically saying to criticism that this was left out of the report that, hey, Hillary Clinton did a lot of bad things in her campaign, and that's the real reason why she lost. In reality, a more nuanced argument would be to acknowledge that both things can be true. The Clinton campaign had a lot of deficiencies. Comey dropped this letter, and also the media, in some senses, did a really poor job of covering it all. There's a hundred different storylines and a hundred different reasons that Donald Trump won and Hillary Clinton lost, and there is no one answer that is correct. There's also dozens of factors that did play a role, and trying to find one that's determinative is kind of a fool's errand. All right, finally, vive la France. Big election uh, yesterday, Sunday, in France, in which the neophyte politician, uh, centrist independent candidate Emmanuel Macron, I don't know how my... Apologies to our Parisian uh, listeners. Exactly. My uh, high school French doesn't carry me very far. Uh, he finished first in a 11-person field just ahead of Marine Le Pen, the National Front far-right politician who has drawn comparisons to Donald Trump. They will face each other in a runoff on May 7th. And I think this has become a big media story in America because a lot of people draw parallels to the change election in America, to Brexit, and saying, look, this is another example of a Western country choosing political outsiders. And that's true. But when we were talking earlier, you pointed out that that's a little bit too facile a comparison. It's definitely becoming the latest domino or the latest chapter in this sort of global narrative regarding the rise of populism, particularly far right populism. And in, in some senses, sort of the decline of democratic norms or belief systems. But, you know, as, as you pointed out, it, I think it, it does simplify to a little bit too much of an extent where in a lot of these countries you have so many sort of local intricacies that really don't apply across borders. It's a real challenge for journalists to point out the similarities and the, the winds of change that are sweeping across Europe and America, but also making it clear that these are different countries with different internal political dynamics. And what you see happen in England is happens for different reasons than things that happen in America that happened in Holland. We saw the conventional wisdom kind of flipped on its head when Gert Wilders, the far-right candidate, didn't do as well as was expected. Also has a full head of hair. He does. There's one commonality for you. <laughs> we Americans are obsessed with movies and films that are inspired by true stories. Mark Wahlberg, one of my favorite lowbrow cultural exports, has made something like seven of them. And oftentimes, artists producing such work consult with journalists or historians to adhere to some semblance of accuracy. Less often, however, do we see actual news organizations themselves creating such fictionalized versions of events. 
But Univision, the massive Spanish language broadcaster that also owns the sites formerly known as Gawker Media, is trying it out. Carlette, you and Shelley talked to a bunch of folks there about this new project. What is it exactly that they're trying to do? They're doing a dramatization of El Chapo. He was a notorious gangster that had a cartel in Mexico. He was smuggling drugs all over the world. Currently, he's actually in jail and probably most famous for two prison escapes that were super elaborate. So basically, they are tackling the story, but it's interesting because it's not documentary. It's fiction, but the news team and their fiction drama arm are working together to produce it. It's nine episodes, and the first one aired last night. So a Univision team of journalists is working with filmmakers, essentially, for a miniseries. Shelley, how exactly do they work together? How do they approach it? How they toe the line between truth and fiction in order to both be an entertaining product, but also be truthful to the extent that they can? Well, to start with, the investigative team put together a timeline of El Chapo's life based on all their reporting over the past few decades about um, all his escapades. And then the creative team went through all that information, and then they worked together to try and identify what the main turning points in the story were that they wanted to focus on. When we talked to people on the creative side, we spoke to uh, Silvana, who was the showrunner, And she was basically saying that there was so much information that it was like, she described it as monstrous, the amount of information that they had to deal with. So they needed to cut it down and they needed to, in some cases, they had to blend events together. Often something exciting would happen and then there would be years in between before anything else happened. In order to have a dramatic arc that's satisfying for viewers, they had to condense things and um, change things. Sometimes they had to blend characters, but they did it in ongoing consultation with the investigative journalists. And you mentioned earlier that El Chapo at one point in his life essentially lived as an outlaw in a remote area and no one has any idea really what was going on. So I mean, what what do they do in situations where they really don't have a lot of reporting to work with? That was the point that Gerardo, the investigative journalist, said he was out in the jungle. No one really had that much of a sense of what was happening in his day-to-day life then. That's the point when they need to fictionalize on top of that. They try and build based on like accounts from different characters. But there are certain points where they need to fictionalize things to bring the character to life. Did they acknowledge in talking to you the trade-offs of this or, you know, what what potential downsides there might be to fictionalize, you know, something that has such a notorious reputation globally? I think they were aware of the desire to be careful about the way they told the story. For instance, there was a cert- there's a certain mythology around El Chapo that he was like kind of a Robin Hood character and he gave a lot of money back to the poor, back to the communities where he came from and and they're basically saying we can prove that this isn't true. So even though that's a dramatic arc in the story, we don't want to do that because that's sort of mythologizing him in a way that isn't accurate. So I guess that you need to be mindful of how history will be interpreted in the minds of the people that see the story. I certainly see potential downsides to this, but I will say the last examples that immediately come to mind spoke to such larger, greater truths the People versus O.J. Simpson, which was a, a recent miniseries done about the O.J. Simpson uh, murder trial. And it just seemed when I was watching that, that each successive thing that happened just seemed crazier and crazier than the next. And it seemed like there's no way this could possibly be what had happened in real life. And then lo and behold, you go check to see what the actual course of events were, and they were all correct to the most part. To your point, I just think it's really interesting to kind of use this as a way to bring in new audiences because, you know, we're all news junkies here, so we're paying attention to things very closely and always watching it. But for people that aren't so tapped into the news, this is, I think it's a great way to 
get the information that you need. With OJ, you know, it was a very long trial, so to bring it down to, you know, a short number of episodes, they just have to kind of hit all the dramatic parts, and that's where it gets fuzzy between what's really happened and what didn't. It's basically true to the real story, even if they have to do that. Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote the book upon which the series was based on, he, I'm sure, appreciates the renewed interest in his journalism. <laughs> right. um, certainly a financial windfall for him, or even Chernow for uh, the Hamilton biography, right. as Dave's just finished listening to. You shall read it if you have you know, three years of extra time <laughs> laying around. <laughs> but my question, I guess, for this and where I see potential issues is once you start blending journalism in the interest of a fictional, you know, something that could be turned into a fictionalized narrative, does that at all influence the sort of journalism you're going to choose to do? When you guys were talking with the investigative reporters, did they express any concerns about this collaboration? I don't think it's a concern for them because they're not full-time working with Storyhouse. So they, they're continuing with their day-to-day jobs and they consult. So Storyhouse did have a Mexican journalist who was in the writer's room with them every day, but he wasn't from the investigative team. So the investigative team is still going about their day-to-day work. I guess this is just an extra element to it. I think it certainly does depend on what type of story you try this with. For something to be dramatized, it needs to be very character-driven. El Chapo is like an extremely crazy case. And for a traditional investigative story that is often very data-heavy or document-heavy, it just wouldn't work to the same extent. So I, so I I don't know necessarily if it would affect the types of journalism that journalists pursue, but I do think that only certain types of journalism would work for this sort of thing to have any added value. One issue that the creative team did talk about um, that they were faced with was that sometimes the journalists would come to them and say, there's three different versions of how this unfolded and we don't know which one is correct. Um, So there's the official version, this is what we think happened, and this is what somebody else says happened, and then they have to choose which version they're going to go with. In relation to Narcos, which was a series um, based on the life of Pablo Escobar, uh, after that came out, after season two ended, Pablo Escobar's son came out and wrote like a 2,000-word Facebook post that listed 28 inaccuracies in the series. I guess one of the things that the writers are aware of is that they're writing about people who are still alive and trying to be respectful of the truth in relation to that. A few hours from this recording, on Monday afternoon, a new era will begin at Fox News. The ouster of Bill O'Reilly, the king of cable, has ushered in a new primetime lineup that will take its first crack tonight. And that shift at Fox has corresponded with broader seismic changes in the landscape of conservative or right-wing or Republican media. Pick your descriptor. But before we get to those broader changes, Pete, what is the new primetime lineup at Fox and what are people saying about what to expect? Sliding into Bill O'Reilly's 8 o'clock spot, you have Tucker Carlson, the formerly bow-tied Crossfire host who has basically completed this meteoric ascent at Fox News, going into the 9 o'clock spot that Megyn Kelly vacated, and now taking over O'Reilly's spot, which is the most prominent position at Fox, always been the uh, leading ratings getter and just the biggest moneymaker for the network. Taking his role at 9 o'clock is a roundtable called The Five, which is, as the name implies, five commentators kind of on a rotating panel discussing the news of the day. And And as uh, NPR's David Folkenflik would point out, one of the pioneers with Fox's very famous, quote-unquote, leg cam showing the lower bodies of their female hosts. Right. I imagine when we get into how Fox got in this position, we might discuss that more. The Five is now moving into primetime, and then at 10 o'clock you have that old stalwart, 
Sean Hannity carrying water for Donald Trump. The anchor, Tucker Carlson, what are the early expectations for what he's bringing to the table? He's not new to cable news. He was one of the earliest people who was on CNN's Crossfire way back in the early 2000s. There was that famous clip of Jon Stewart debating him and Paul Begala on CNN. He's more recently been on MSNBC. He's been a frequent host on Fox. And now he's sort of the central figure in this, this new landscape. He has uh, completed the cable news triple crown and coming to Fox News after being at the other two networks. And I think people have been somewhat surprised by his instant success. And he has been a ratings getter. He's had some moments go viral in his interviews with different figures, notably Lauren Duca, a writer for Teen Vogue who penned a, a famous editorial earlier this year. I think people are expecting that there will be change, right? Bill O'Reilly had been there for 20 years. He had a certain tone and approach to things. And Tucker Carlson's younger. He's more kind of contrarian. He is definitely someone who enjoys being on camera and creating those viral moments, not necessarily lecturing down to people. Um, his default setting seems to be a sort of curious contempt for whoever he's talking to and creating those moments of discomfort that make for good television. Right. I always had curious contempt for his bow ties. I'm glad that he ditched them. But this comes after a year of tremendous upheaval at Fox. Obviously, Roger Ailes, the heart and soul of the cable station, left with his own sexual harassment allegations. It's lost Megyn Kelly, one of its largest and rising stars, Greta Van Susteren, and now Bill O'Reilly, the king of cable news. And there's been a lot of sort of meta coverage of this within the media landscape because Fox really is a force of nature. nature particularly among the Republican Party and right-wing media circles. And it coincides with this shift in power within the parent company from Rupert Murdoch, who is this sort of longtime media magnate, to his sons, James and Lachlan. And I just wanted to read an interesting passage written last week by Michael Wolf, who's a noted Fox chronicler. Uh, he's written a book about the Murdochs. And he was basically outlining what he sees as the potential for what James Murdoch, the heir apparent at Fox, sees for the news organization. James's dream is, is of combining Sky News, which is a British broadcaster, and Fox News with a vast Murdoch reach and producing some ultimate global news brand. Where Fox News is parochial and America first, the new global brand is worldly and unlimited. It will give his family's company, once the pirate company, new meaning and new stature, a force for stability instead of upheaval. So the idea, if this is true, is to make it more of a global, digitally focused brand. And I guess I just don't see it, just given what Fox News' MO has been in the United States over the last 20 years or so. It's been so focused on a sort of nationalism that Donald Trump and his supporters have really embodied in a particular way. And I, I just don't know if that would extend elsewhere. It's hard to see how that would work as a business de decision for them. Like, I'm wondering how their viewers would respond to that in, a, in the U.S. particularly. I can't imagine that that would be interested in that new direction. I think that's one of the big challenges, especially for James Murdoch, who's the younger and more liberal of the two brothers. He wants to bring it a little bit closer to mainstream media, respectable, traditional media properties. And to do that and take the brand global without destroying the thing that his father and Roger Ailes have built is going to be a challenge. And I don't think he's sure of what that exactly will look like. And what this means more broadly for the conservative media is, is really an open question and an interesting one at that. 
if you look back to the history of the American conservative movement, looking back 50 or 60 years or so, media activism has been a central part of that. You had places like Human Events and then National Review, which sort of emerged as the flagship journals of the American conservative movement. And over the 80s and 90s, that morphed more into the smash mouth style of talk radio. And then in turn, Fox News, which was started in 1996. Now we're potentially reaching a third generation of conservative media where Fox News is not the lone superpower in this environment. And it's really been broken open with with a more fragmented digital landscape. Notably among all of these new players is Breitbart, which seems to have sort of an open phone line to the White House and has a very clever digital media strategy, particularly on social media, to drive a you know, more populist, nationalist. It's not quite conservative. It's sort of right-wing in some senses. And that's made a lot of waves within this this broader environment. I do think that's true, but those bases are always the same. And, you know, people that really support conservative movements are the ones that read those sites versus mainstream media still gets more readers, gets more reach and things like that. Of course, social media allows for that to spread much more than you know, if it was back in the day with newspapers or whatever, but it's not going to get a global audience like that. I think the history here is interesting. You mentioned National Review, which was founded by William F. Buckley in the 50s, and it sort of became the driving ideological motor of the conservative movement. We obviously live in an era of digital media right now, and there isn't a driving force in conservative politics uh, in the digital sphere. You have everything from the fever swamps of InfoWars to something like Breitbart to more mainstream style publications like The Daily Caller. But no one has claimed a mantle of conservative thought or I don't even know if that's the right term to be using right now because Trumpism, for whatever that means, is something other than what conservatism has meant in the past. So what happens in the digital space with the conservative movement is going to be really interesting. While there's no one that's speaking for everyone in the conservative media media sphere, Breitbart was actually setting the agenda and driving that narrative even more broadly in the mainstream media as well. Right. And of course, during the election, for a large part of it, the person leading Breitbart was Steve Bannon, who is now, at least to some extent, helping set the agenda in the White House. And what we've seen from Fox News, just to bring it back to that, is also a shift. Early on in the primaries, especially when Trump was attacking Megyn Kelly, Roger Ailes, some of the hosts there, kind of opposed Trump since he has won the election. I think you're still seeing the traditional journalists there approach their jobs, even if it's from a conservative viewpoint, with professionalism. But some of the hosts, and we're seeing this in the new primetime lineup, whether it's Tucker Carlson or The Five, and of course, Sean Hannity, whatever James Murdoch might want to do there, the actual programming has embraced Trump in a way that I think is somewhat surprising given where the network stood 18 months ago. To just uniformly support Trump probably provides the best business opportunities for a media company, but it's almost difficult to talk about because the categories don't really apply here. National Review is certainly a conservative publication. Fox is not conservative. At this point, it seems at least they are wedded to the Republican Party and particularly Donald Trump. Breitbart seems in many cases a little bit more adversarial toward Trump and the GOP then does Fox. 
but they're not necessarily conservative. They're not necessarily right-wing as we understand it. No, and I think they would call themselves not conservative. They would say they're nationalist populists. Right. And then if you could go even further, if you go to places like World Net Daily or Infowars, I've watched Infowars the other night, and I felt like I was going insane after three minutes of listening to Alex Jones talk. Like, I'm, I'm starting to buy fluoride-free toothpaste. It's, in, it's incredible. And then if you go even further than that, you can go on Facebook and just get lost in a complete cesspool of just like fake news partisan pages that that really produce no content whatsoever. They share memes and they have millions upon millions of followers. And it's it's just really difficult to make sense of any of this, of of where the poles of power are and who really drives discussion. I do wonder as media becomes more fragmented and there's more uncertainty regarding Trump's performance and Republican Party's performance and what the audience wants, whether that's still going to be the case. Well, I hope somebody speaks with one voice soon and you can pay attention to them and instead of spending your evenings on InfoWars and dance Facebook rabbit holes. I'm, I'm telling you, it's a pretty uh, pretty eye-opening experience. I would recommend to everyone out there listening to spend some time on InfoWars. Just check out, see how the other half lives. I came out of it wearing a tinfoil hat. That was our show. Thank you so much for kicking it with us. I want to give a special thanks to my fellow CJR colleagues who are in the studio with me, Pete Vernon, Carlette Spike, and Shelley Hepworth. Go to cjr.org, become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review, and please subscribe, rate, and comment on our podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever else you get your shows. Also, follow us on Twitter, at KickerCJR, or send us topics for future discussions or suggested guests that you'd like to listen to at thekicker at cjr.org. Thanks again for kicking with us. We'll see you next week.